I think we forget when we're doing humanitarian work, mission work, that we are actually interfering in the lives of others, no matter the motivation. The motivation might be holy and good, but we're still interfering. And if we're not going to do the due diligence of learning the context, understanding the culture, hearing from the people, um, we really have no right to come and interfere. Welcome to the show where we talk about topics in modern Christianity that are so challenging, they require us to be grounded in something much bigger than ourselves. If you're here, you have likely found yourself hungry for something deeper. You want to find answers for how to hold on to your faith after seeing religion be twisted in a way that has somehow become bad news instead of good. I'm here for all of that too. I'm here for the spiritual wrestle, and I'm here to learn more ways that people are finding hope in a God that interrupts our norms and expectations. You might be asking, can business really have a kingdom effect? Why combine business and missions? You're wondering is valid. Statistically, businesses had a very harmful effect on vulnerable communities. More than one-third of all global profits are made in forced labor exploitation, including nearly $8 billion generated in domestic work by employers who use threats and coercion and pay little or no wages. Business can and has been used for so much evil, but it also has the power to be used for so much good. It's through good business that financial burdens are lifted, safe working conditions are established, and authentic relationships are formed. That is why we are on mission at Kindred Exchange to empower entrepreneurs around the world and to equip our community with the resources they need to begin to shift the way they approach mission work. Join us as we pave the way for a better form of impact, one that is rooted in humble partnerships and Kindred Exchanges. To learn more or become a monthly donor today, go to kindredexchange.co slash donate. Rachel, I am thrilled to invite you to the podcast today and to be chatting with you about the White Savior Industrial Complex. For those of you who may be new to Rachel's voice, uh, she comes as a writer uh, who writes about life at the crossroads of faith and culture for the New York Times, Christianity Today, Runner's World, and more outlets. Her work is influenced by living in the Horn of Africa, raising third culture kids, and adventurous exploration of the natural world. Uh, Rachel's lived in Somalia and Djibouti since moving to Africa in 2003, and currently she and her husband run the International School of Djibouti. Uh, Rachel is the author of Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus, I have my copy right here, and Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli uh, Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. So we'll let everyone know for sure how to find you at the end of the podcast. But Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. What time is it right now in Djibouti? It is 745 at night. Okay. All right. So not, not terribly inconvenient, I hope, but <laughs> I, uh, I thank you so much for making time and we're just thrilled to have you chatting with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. I love talking about these things. Well, I have been reading your writing since year, I mean, at least two or three years before I moved overseas. And I really think that you were one of the first 
voices that I came to really trust and thinking through how to live and work alongside people who are different than me and how to enter another culture with, with hospitality and, and grace. And so thank you for your blog that you were running, you know, way back when, before social media took over, uh, the power of the written word, what's that journey been like, you know, figuring out how to put your words out into the world. What have you, how are you finding ways to connect with people through your words these days? To be honest, these days, it's been more challenging. There's really no blogs anymore. I have a Substack newsletter, but I haven't been very active on it. Um, and I feel that loss in some way because of the way that writing in those early years connected me to people like you and connected me to ideas and things that people are wrestling with all over the world. So I really do miss that. I'm still writing as much, probably more than I ever did, but that's because I'm in seminary. And so all my work is just going for professors and not into the public space. Um, but it's, I like that too. I like developing some ideas and, and getting deeper into things that maybe can be useful in more public spaces in the future. I love that. I remember when you were thinking about starting at Fuller and so now you're in a double master's studying a master's of theology and a master's of intercultural studies. And man, I would, I would love to just be in your seat right now uh, because I, I'm, uh, I just love being in school. I love being in the classroom. So what are, what are some things that are really burning in your heart right now as you're interacting with, with, you know, academia again and, and learning new things. I, I've really enjoyed your Substack newsletter when you're able to, to put time into it. Um, what's something that you would say is really burning in your heart as, as you continue to learn and live abroad? One thing that I've been studying this fall that is kind of, um, it fits into the life abroad too, but it's this concept of a theology of Holy Saturday. So we have, you know, Good Friday, crucifixion of Jesus, and we have Easter Sunday, resurrection. and American Christianity tends to kind of rush right through Holy Saturday. And I think in some ways people are starting to talk about that now, but we just did some really deep reading on um, what does that mean that Jesus was actually really dead? We kind of have this triumphal idea of Christianity um, because we know about the resurrection now. But on that Saturday, that first Saturday, Mary, the disciples, the, the people on the road to Emmaus, they did not know that there was resurrection coming. And in the fact that Jesus was actually dead, not victoriously dead, not um, triumphantly dead, but there was just this hopelessness and um, that that sense of, if that was true of Jesus, if, if you know God in Jesus, however that works with Trinity and incarnation and all these things, went to actual deadness, um, what does that say for us when we're feeling hopeless, when we're feeling consumed by darkness or um, just looking at things that seem really, really dead? And then, and God is with us in that moment and has experienced that deep darkness, that deep loneliness, that total absence of hope. Even in that, God has experienced that. And I think my, my thinking about Easter and the resurrection of Christ um, has often just rushed through that, that really deep darkness. Um, and so thinking about the witness of Jesus in nothingness um, has been really powerful. And, and actually, I don't know how this works, but I've been thinking about that Jesus being in darkness concept. And if that's how he ended 
essentially his life on earth. Think about how he began it on earth um, in darkness, in the darkness of a woman's body, in the womb where God was being knit together in his mother's womb. I don't understand that either, how that works. But that concept of Jesus really in darkness and being transformed even by that darkness into human life and then into resurrected life, that is, uh, I don't have it all figured out yet in my mind. I mean, I think this is what theological studies are for, is to ask kind of big, crazy questions. But that's been something I'm very interested in right now and, um, and what that can offer for hope for uh, people like in all around the world going through deep, deep darkness. Mm. But I didn't, we didn't plan this, but that's a perfect segue in my mind of what we're going to talk about today, because I think we are so uncomfortable with darkness and anytime Mm -hmm. we interact with something that makes us feel uncomfortable, we interact with death, with poverty, with social, uh, social marginalization. We, we tend to want to rush in and fix it. Right. And, and we are, we're, we're not happy to sit in, in the holiness of brokenness, the holiness of darkness and, and invite God into what he's doing there. We tend to try to, we, we tend to try to address it and attack it. Right. So this is, this has particularly been tied to something called the white savior industrial complex. This is not a new phrase. Uh, actually, Teju Cole wrote about this in 2012 after uh, the, the Coney 2012 videos were coming out in, um, in East Africa. So uh, we're looking at a, a warlord who has, has uh, used children as soldiers to really be his army, right? The Lord's resistance army and, uh, and, a white man from the United States launched this huge, um, this huge social media campaign. Um, and it was really powerful and a lot of people got behind it. It was interesting that that was the case that, that people really attached themselves to because there was so much tragedy and continues to be so much tragedy in the world. And, and we can't hold all of it. Certain issues get more of our attention than others. Anyways. Um, I want to share two quotes that he wrote on Twitter back in 2012, and then ask you some questions about how, how this really plays out in our lives and how you've seen this uh, play out in your work as well. But in 2012 on Twitter, Teju Cole said, the white savior supports brutal policies in the morning, founds charities in the afternoon and receives awards in the evening. White savior industrial complex is not about justice. It is about having a big emotional experience that validates privilege. And when you hear those words, what, what thoughts come to your mind? One of the first things I think of is, yeah, I had that when we first came to Africa, um, without knowing it, without recognizing it, I'm a white woman in Africa, um, wanting to help people. And so it, starting to think about these things and learn about them through that article in 2012 and much more reading since has been really convicting um, and just exposing of my own motivation, my own ambition. Um, And then, and helping, I need to learn and still I'm learning how to talk about this in my position that I'm in. I've written a book you mentioned in the opening, Stronger Than Death, which is about a woman named Annalena Tonelli. So I was a white lady writing a book about a white lady in Africa. She did, um, she worked among Somali nomads, treating them for tuberculosis. And so I, you know, this concept of the white savior complex is right in my life. Um, 
And so those quotes are convicting, they're challenging, um, and they're things that I want to counter, both in myself and by having conversations like this, like that I can help other people to recognize it, to see it for what it is, and then to counter it and do something different and better. Yeah, I think embracing that is the first step, right? To to hear a critique about ourselves from someone um, that we are not in a, a relationship with, but is speaking directly to something that we experience and we encounter, receiving those words and allowing them to marinate in our souls and 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 to have the courage to address them is is not an easy task and something that we've seen com- societies completely break down over, right? The, the lack of willingness to it, to it receive a critique of who we are and, and our own worldview. So what, what have you seen, uh, or how have you seen this play out in your work in Somalia and Djibouti? Um, how have you seen this white savior industrial complex really, really play out in your work or um, in your own life? Yeah, I just want to follow up what you said. I think it's really hard to see that kind of humanitarian or mission type of work um, as potentially negative or causing problems. Another quote from Cole's article is that um, if we're going to interfere in the lives of others, a little due diligence is a minimum requirement. And I think we forget when we're doing humanitarian work, mission work, that we are actually interfering in the lives of others, no matter the motivation. The motivation might be holy and good, but we're still interfering. And if we're not gonna do the due diligence of learning the context, understanding the culture, hearing from the people, um, we really have no right to come and interfere. And so that that quite also convicting. Um, so yeah, just to affirm what you said that we don't want to sit with that uncomfortability but our own motivations. And it's really hard to see that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, this, especially when you add the faith-based perspective of mission, I think there's a, an extra risk for missionaries. And so we do see this here um, because there's this idea of saving both potentially out of poverty or suffering and then spiritual things come into it. And so, um, and most people doing that kind of work in this part of the world are white. They're not all white. That's not true. Um, and, and by white, I also want to clarify that we're not only talking about white people, we're talking about white culture. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's kind of a, a broaderness to it. And it's not just about skin color. It's about attitude and perspective and a, a culture that we bring. And so, you know, there's a, I have seen a lack of interest, I think, in the local culture and this idea that I've got some skills and I've got some money and I've got some training from the United States or from wherever in the West and I'm going to come and teach you guys how to make this better. Um, and a, a real lack of wanting to learn from the local people. That's something that I've seen. Uh, so, I mean, one story, if I can share this now, I guess, is where it's, I think, a real powerful example of how this played out. Um, I had started a running club back in 2008. And uh, I think it was around 20, 2012, probably right around the time this article came out. And so I was thinking about all these things. Um, 2012, I was with the running team. It's a young Jibushan Somali girls, and they're from low-income families. Our goal with the team is to keep them in school. So they come to participate on the running club, and we will help keep them in school. Um, so I'm sitting on this hillside watching the girls run, and a car comes pulling up. It's a big white Land Cruiser, 
Um, and inside, I can't remember the details now, but it's three or four white men. Um, they come running out, they come straight to me because I'm the white person that they can communicate with. Although there are a number of other people, including the Djiboutian coach and uh, another coach from Bolivia also spoke very good English, but they came straight to me and they said, are these kids poor? And I just was very flustered. And I was thinking in my mind, like, well, technically yes, but why are you asking? And what's your name? And why, are, why don't you ask me my name? And, you know, they just wanted to know if they were poor. And so uh, I just was flustered. And they said, we've got Gatorade and we've got soccer balls. And I was thinking again, like, okay, you could give them to the coach and we can store them in my car and we can use this stuff as like awards for, you know, in the future for training and good grades. Um, and they just decided to start handing these things out. So they had maybe 10 or 12 bottles of Gatorade, four or five, six soccer balls. And they started handing them out to kids just randomly and taking pictures with the kids and the kids are all excited. And then they drive off and just leave in a cloud of dust. You know, I'm thinking these guys are patting themselves on the back, but they have just done something really great. They gave some poor kids Gatorade and soccer balls. Um, so they did their good deed for the day. What they didn't know is that what they left behind was utter chaos. Not all the kids got balls. Not all the kids got Gatorade. Fist fights broke out. Practice was over. In fact, it got so bad that practice ended for a week or two because some of the boys started threatening to rape or beat some of the girls. I mean, just obviously, to me, it was obvious that it was exaggerated, but it got very violent. And um, <laughs> they could have handled it very differently, but they needed to be the heroes, these guys who brought the stuff. They needed to feel good about what they did, having no idea that they just ruined one, two weeks of practice for this team, relationships on the team, lack of trust with the coaches then with me. I mean, it was quite evident to me, like this is, I mean, this is a worst case scenario, right? But this is a very good example of how their motivation was probably good, but their the impact was really damaging. Yeah. Yeah, man, that is that story of, of, just the fallout from a, maybe a five, 10 minute interaction. I'm not sure how, how long they were there, but just the long reaching effects of good intentions gone, gone bad. And so mm -hmm. I, I think it's important that we stop and we ask like, why, why is this happening? Like what all is at play when we are interacting with our own privilege and, and why do we respond to these situations that we perceive as maybe a social disparity? Why, why do we want to jump in and fix it immediately? And I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question after that, but like, let's, let's hang out here for a minute and just talk about the why. Um, <laughs> what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think on the one hand, it's really hard to see people suffer. These kids weren't suffering, you know, in practice that day, but there are other times when they, people are suffering. And so it's really hard to sit and, you know, not interfere. Um, we want to help. We have been given a lot. I have been given much education, finances, you know, health, family support. And so I want to give out of that. Um, so I think there's that. It's just hard to see pain. Um, I also think as Americans, we have an idea that we know how to do it. Um, we, yeah, I just see that around the world with Americans. We have a go get it. Even my Jewishian friends tell me, you guys have this sense about you of confidence and like that we can get stuff done. 
Um, and so there can be an arrogance with that. Um, and then unwillingness, again, to, to show curiosity and learn. It takes time. It takes relational humility and investment to really learn about what's going on. And then there's a failure to understand, again, this is from that article, the constellationality. I don't know if that's even a real word, but mm. um, of how systems and networks are all interconnected. And so, you know, we can think if I give this hungry person food, I have solved it. Well, okay, but why are they hungry tomorrow? Why mm -hmm. are they hungry in the first place? We fail to think about the whole systems behind it. You know, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Help the Samaritan, yes, help the Samaritan. But why is the road dangerous? Why are there bandits and thieves who are so desperate they have to attack and kill an innocent person? What is happening at the bigger level? And how do we see these things interplay? And as Americans, again, a lot of our politics and foreign policy are a part of this. And I don't want to get political necessarily, but I think we need to pay attention. If I'm going to get passionate about how to care for African children, and I even want to not say African, I want to say Kenyan or Djiboutian or Somali, you mm -hmm. know, let's be specific about the places, not just a painting abroad Africa over everybody. But if I want to care for those people, Am I paying attention to how I vote? Am I thinking about my American politics and how that is impacting the situation on the ground right now? Because I know we're talking about the white savior complex, but we are, I'm an American. My American foreign policy government has a massive impact and footprint in the world. And so I think we fail to think about the big picture and how, uh, all these things are intersected and we have to take responsibility for each part of it, not just the part that feels good, which would maybe be handing a kid a sandwich. You know, it's, you're, you're putting a lot of pieces together for me of how often I have been affirmed by my own peers or by my own culture when I have fixed an immediate need and what looks like I am reaching out in compassion and, and selflessness to invite someone into my home or to, you know, give something on the side of the street to someone or go on a short-term trip, you know, somewhere to, to, I don't know, build, build a brick wall somewhere, <laughs> you know, and, and my, my culture that mirrors me, pats me on the back and is like, that was so selfless. You really did a great job. You are such a great person, little, you know, all the things. But when I address systemic issues, and if I even use the word systemic racism or systemic, you know, poverty, that word has gotten me in trouble over and over and over again with people who look like me who say, we don't, that's too political <laughs> or that, you know, that that's not, that's not true. That is people trying to, trying to take us down um, or speak things about us that are not true. And so uh, you're just putting a lot of things, pieces together for me of all of the roles that I have <laughs> been boxed out of or jobs that I've lost when I'm addressing systemic issues rather than just uh, patching, you know, a bandaid over, over one, one really tragic incident. I think you're asking the right questions there. Why are they hungry tomorrow? Why is the road not safe? Those are, those are really powerful questions to ask. Friends, there is one company whose products and practices I regularly sing angelic praises. Able is committed to the very best models of ethical supply chains and healing-centered employment. 
From the cotton used in their products to the way they run the boardroom, I feel confident choosing my Able clothes to wear out of my house each day. I've been a loyal customer for a decade. I love their extended sizes, their leather goods. I am actually looking at three bags of theirs on my coat rack right now. And I love their gold jewelry. I even named my last kid after them. Just kidding. It's a different spelling. But I've seen the backside of Able. I've walked through their design studio, their jewelry workshop, their warehouses. I've even co-led a business workshop with Able's founder, Barrett Ward. So when I tell you I love this company, it is at the top of my list for ethical wearable goods. Shop online and use the code UPWARD15 for a discount on anything you like. That's upward one five. Wear it with pride and use your purchasing power to force exploitative businesses to change their company practices for good. So what, what do we do with this, right? Like how can, how can, and I know that you don't identify as a missionary um, and we're using that word in this, in this season of the podcast, because we want to address kind of a, a, a larger uh, evangelical culture that feels like we have good news to share with people. Okay. So I'm going to use, I'm going to use the word missionary here, but really like, you know, those of us who feel, who feel a burden to share good news with the rest of the world, how can white missionaries resist, would you say a paternalistic approach to community building? I think one thing is to recognize and to be able to communicate this maybe to our you know, supporters or sending organizations, that it takes a long time to fix roads. Uh, it doesn't take so long to drive a guy to a hospital. And so there has to be a level of patience and willingness to not just paint um, or to, you know, to give those accolades for a great picture or a great, you know, one day event, but to really appreciate the length of time required to create real change. Um, I think a lot of people want a short-term experience and they want it to be effective for themselves to you know, go back and have a great story to tell about what they did. Um, but it just takes a really long time. And there's a lot of ups and downs too. So I think we need to appreciate that there's gonna be struggle and moments where it feels like everything's going backwards in, in kind of that Holy Saturday idea of failure even, where things look very, very dead in terms of progress. Um, so appreciating that it's gonna take a long time. Uh, I think another thing that it requires is a real sense of humility. Um, I, when, when we came to Somalia, I did not even know how to survive. I did not know how to get to the market. I had no food in the house. I had two-year-old twins. I was utterly dependent on the Somali woman who just showed up at my front door and said, I'm your housekeeper. And I said, great take me to the market. <laughs> she spoke enough English to know, and she also just knew here's a family, they need food. Um, and so in that sense, like I had to rely on her. I could not just come in and say, hey, I know how to cook. I know how to make food because I didn't. And so having the humility to recognize about other things, not just food, but you know how to run an educational system. My husband and I run a school now, but he didn't start that until we had been here for 13 years and the government asked him to do it um, because he'd built up trust and networks. It's understanding that I don't know how to deal with large scale hunger in this context. Um, and so, you know, being humble to ask questions, it takes uh, curiosity to ask those questions. And then I think this might not quite sound right, but I think it takes a sense of delight 
in terms of recognizing that every single person has something to offer. And so delighting in what the local people are already doing to meet the needs among the, each other, um, delighting in what somebody else can bring to the table. So during COVID, an example of this is um, I had asked uh, my language helper, she couldn't come anymore. I had hired her to help my daughter learn some Somali. She couldn't come anymore because buses were shut down. So the last day we were together, I said, how are you gonna get through this? And she said, what are you asking? We know how to take care of each other. Hmm. And she described how her neighborhood in times of previous crises, whether it was floods that limited people's access to stores for food, or it was disease or it was political unrest, they had experienced how to make a food network, how to make a financial network for people in need. And so it was just really eye-opening to me and I found that delightful. Um, they weren't you know, excelling into well-off life, but they knew how to take care of each other. So I can come into that and think, how can I partner with you with what you're already doing? Um, which, yeah, so so curiosity, humility, delight, I think those are really important. Um, I think it matters that we think in terms of community also, which is also not very American or Western. <laughs> right. You know, and she highlighted that also in saying that, like, we know how to take care of each other. Um, so what is the community doing together to meet needs? Um, and how can we potentially partner? I love that. Um, it, it's a... It it takes a new type of posture to come in with privilege and, and imagine a world in where maybe your privilege is also the thing that's holding you back from understanding how to connect with people, understanding how to live in a world, um, where you are dependent on others and the beauty that comes from that dependency. Uh, it's something that we, we reject because we want to be able to be our individual selves. And, and like you spoke to our culture, uplifts that and upholds that as, as the premium definition of freedom. But, uh, I found, I found so much freedom in, in being needy to the people in my community. Um, you know, my family has been walking through a challenging mm -hmm. couple of months and I have just had to sit and receive <laughs> all of the love and care. And, and I learned that from, I learned that from people outside of my own culture. So uh, thank you for speaking to that. I really appreciate it. Um, I am curious how this plays out in your own thought process. And I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind to speak about being someone who is a runner, an avid runner in a culture that is very hot and very modest, how, when you are, when you are running and, and, and training and you are out and about, I know that there have been a few times that you felt like you were getting some attention that you did not welcome. And how, as a, as a woman from outside of the Jibushin culture, how are, how do you process that in your mind and know when to advocate for your, own, for yourself and for your own worldview and when to stay quiet because maybe you want to honor and value the culture that you're in. Hmm. That, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, how to stand up for yourself and, and how to honor the culture. Um, I think also just back to what you said about right, what you're experiencing right now, I think you're being neighbored. We often mm -hmm. want to be the neighbor, but you are being neighbored in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. It's hard to be in that 
a humble position. I'm really glad you have people to neighbor you. So as a white female runner here, I stick out. I get a lot of sexual harassment attention that I do not want. Um, and I could tell so many stories over 20 years. Sometimes it's bordered on assault. It's been pretty aggressive. And right now there's kind of a lull, but I'm always ready. I have a, I jump, you know, if there's a person close or a motorcycle comes by, I have an instinctive reaction now because it's happened so often. So, so what does that do to my heart towards the people that I'm here to love and I am loved by? Um, it's been really hard to not let the anger and the shame that I feel sometimes spill out in anger and frustration and reaction, um, especially towards local men. And so um, how do I honor this culture? Part of it is that that's not part of this culture. I mean, sin and brokenness is part of every culture. I've been harassed in other countries as well. Um, but that is not something that's honored in this culture. They, they respect women here. Um, women should not be treated like that. So it is appropriate for me to speak out uh, for my own safety, for my own body, for my own dignity. So I will just shout. I have a set phrase of Somali sentences that I know are appropriate in that context. I have hand gestures. I have, I mean, I can do certain things and they just, it's instinctive now to pull these out. Um, but also one thing that we've started doing in the last maybe five years that has been really helpful culturally and to again honor the culture even um, by saying these things are happening what do we do is that uh, we have this fabulous Djiboutian woman on the board of directors of the school that my husband founded and so she takes very seriously the safety of our staff at the school which includes a lot of foreign women and um, when this when I started learning that this was happening to other members of our staff I said, okay, you know what? We're gonna go ahead and talk to this woman. So I took one of our, our assistant directors. She and I went, talked to this woman and this woman said, we are going to the police. This is not okay. So she went with us to the police station. She's the one who brought our story to the police. They had a sit down. At first it was just uh, one policeman and then several others came in as they saw like, wait a second, we want people like this to be here. We want them to be safe. This is not how we treat people. And so they took it very seriously. Um, and within a day or two, there was actually police kind of just walking through the neighborhoods where we lived. Um, and that has continued now for several, for several years since she did that with us. And so again, it's a, a way of just saying to this woman, hey, we need some help here. Um, I don't know what to do. Can you take care of us? And she did, and it, it's been beautiful. And so again, there's this chance to say, actually, I'm the one with the need um, and you have these connections with the police and uh, can you make it different? And she did. It's it's so counterintuitive to us to come needy, to come with a need that makes us feel inadequate because we can't solve our own problems. But how else do we build community and live in, in like in a shared humanity with one another? unless we are offering solutions to each other's needs that we are so used. And I think this speaks back to the white savior industrial complex. We are so used to being the ones who can solve everyone else's problems that we are uncomfortable in our own skin when we need someone else to solve ours. And I see it from 
friends, you know, now that I'm back in the United States, I see it from friends who refuse dinner when I know that they could really use a night off or, you know, I send them coffee money and they're like, no, I should be the one sending you money. (laughs) It's like, we don't know how to receive because we've been so used to being the one solving problems for everyone else. And we really miss out right on, on an, on an opportunity to live alongside other people, um, in true community, because we've, we've just been taught to be individuals. What I love about your book, Rachel, um, and this is, you know, your most recent book pillars, how Muslim friends led me closer to Jesus. I I'm going to be honest. There are a lot of books that are out in the world now, and uh, I'm writing my own manuscripts. So, you know, there's, (laughs) I, I expect this from other people, but I I read every word of this book and it really spoke to me and shepherded, shepherded my soul in, in a beautiful way. And I want to share a quote from, from the book because, um, I, I found it really poignant and it, and it speaks to, it speaks to your heart and connecting with your Muslim neighbors. Um, and I hope that this will help others to just see how how living alongside other people really can invite us into a deeper relationship with, with God. What, what you said was I've read that some Muslims see prayer, not as an interruption to their lives, but as a call back to what is real. In other words, their daily tasks are the interruption to prayer. And eventually I would see prayer as an invisible stream that I could step into while baking bread or rocking a baby or stretching with my running club. Eventually I would tune my ear to the endless hum of a world at prayer. So if you had to summarize, summarize this book and summarize what it has meant to live alongside others in community, um, rather than trying to fix their problems, rather than trying to be the solution, um, how has that, how has that changed your understanding of, of God, of, of your walk with Christ? And how would you share those thoughts with other people? I am just continually struck by the people who have loved me well. And those are people that I tried to honor in that book. Some of the women who really have protected me over the years have helped me, um, you know, taking care of my family, prayed for me through cancer, taking care of me when I had a baby here um, and was alone without family. So just that the sense of being neighbored well by Somali Muslims has been life-changing, transformative for my faith. Um, for myself, for my relationships. I just, I'm not the person I was when we came um, because I can see the beauty uh, of the faith and of the life and of the culture of these women who are so different from me economically, religiously, culturally, all these ways. Um, And it makes me want to keep learning. It makes me really curious to know um, this is the only place I've been now for 20 years. This is what I know deeply but I know other cultures also have beautiful things about them. Um, and I want to encourage people to see that, um, to not be afraid, to not know things, uh, to not be afraid to be welcomed and to be neighbored, to be taken care of. Um, so yeah, to, I just, I want people to take delight in all the unique diversity of this incredible, broken, hard, beautiful, holy world that we walk on. I'm going to touch base with you again in April. Um, maybe I haven't looked at when Easter is <laughs> next year, but, um, and just get your wisdom right on, on living in that Holy Saturday. I love how many times you spoke to that, 
that uh, road to Jericho and and what that long haul work looks like of addressing systemic issues um, because they they require a lot of humility and 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 I appreciate the way that you live that out so beautifully. Thanks for being courageous enough to talk about these things on a podcast where everyone can <laughs> can hear the wrestle and and witness it with us. So uh, Rachel, thanks for being with us today. You're absolutely fabulous. One of my favorite people. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening in. And we are always eager to hear from you as you process these nuanced topics. Shoot me an email at lauren at kindredexchange.co or find me on Instagram at upwardly dependent. Of course, I always welcome your honest reviews on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast, or you can engage with us on our Kindred Exchange Instagram at kindred.exchange. Just do me one favor. As we process and grow together, stay rooted in truth that you know is absolute. And that is the fact that we are finite beings and therefore rely on something much bigger than ourselves. That's what the Upwardly Dependent Life is all about. One million thank yous to our amazing podcast team. Susan Knox is our podcast manager, Kate Kim, our post-production editor, and Abby Littlefield, our incredible producer. Music written and recorded by Grant and Sarah Goodman and produced by Elijah Hester.